just spent time thinking about examples of God drawing people to himself, people who we wouldn't normally expect. I've emphasized numerous times a, a key idea is that if your study of theology results in loving God, but not all people, then you're probably only loving the idea of God. And if you're wondering what that phrase means, if you're still not quite getting it, it's simple. If you are actually following Jesus, your actions will show evidence of it. And if they don't, well, you got a problem. Uh, most Sundays we have a, a longer amount of time to discuss, mull over the scriptures. Also, there's normally like a, a thing here that blocks me. And this is really throwing me off. <laughs> I'm like, there's nothing there. Normally we have more time, but that's not the case today. I'm going to attempt to be more condensed. Um, that doesn't mean that this is any less important than, than previous weeks. In fact, this might actually be more difficult to hear than our other times. Because this morning, Christians, I'm going to remind us that what we have already been learning God, in the God's Heart for the World series actually requires something of us. At the end, I'm going to challenge us with a very important question of, so what are we going to do about it? For those listening who don't consider themselves Christians, I hope you, that you'll recognize by the end of our time together that religious people like myself, when we say that we follow Jesus, we actually do mean that we follow Jesus, meaning that every choice is filtered through the question of what would Jesus do, even the hard ones. Preparing to speak this week was not the easiest. You can ask my wife about that. I just, it was hard. Preaching what it looks like to walk the walk and not just talk the talk has a very, very real possibility of ruffling feathers. And as I studied, as I prayed, as I prepared, I was reminded of something I, I once heard from one of my professors. He said, not only does a pastor need to know what they're going to say, but they need to know how they should say it. Smart guy. Also very funny guy. What he meant was that preaching is not just public speaking. It's not just giving instruction or edification. It's not just reading the text of the Bible to people. It's not just being an encouragement. It's not just being engaging and relevant and approachable. A preaching is a combination of all these things, but with a core goal to effectively communicate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help whoever is listening to understand that it requires a response from them. It's not enough to just hear it and walk out the door. You have to actually do something with it. If this was just public speaking, then I would simply deliver messages that would be easy to hear, that didn't challenge us to continually strive for righteousness. I would obsess over making sure that you liked me, and I, I won't lie, I'm a human, I like to be liked, that's a very real temptation, but I know that if I can someday stand before the throne of God and hear from my Creator that I was faithful in the task He gave me, that I did well in this calling, I will have succeeded. Even when we look at the Scripture and we're, we're challenged by it and we're just like, don't like that verse, it's still good. How you choose to respond this morning's, to this morning's challenge is between you and the Holy Spirit. Um, as much as I may wish it, I can't respond for you. So before we go any further, I want to pray for us. Father God, I, I pray that we will hear from you this morning, that we will listen to your word. I pray that my words will be your words, 
And that if they are not, God, that you will strike them from our memory. I pray for those that have not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, that they will do so today. For those that already have, that they will continue to prove it every single day, even when it is hard. We thank you for this chance to study your word together. Amen. Something you should know about me is that I grew up in a Christian house, and from birth, I was surrounded by church stuff. You guys know what church stuff is? Okay, we're, we're going to have some call and response time. You just need to be aware, okay? Here's what I mean by, by church stuff. I attended Sunday, also, I'm not bragging, okay? I'm just giving you an insight into me growing up. I attended Sunday school and church and Sunday night service every week that they were offered. I helped pass the offering plates. I ran the soundboard. I sang in the Tuesday night worship band. Every Wednesday, I attended Awana. I helped our, our group win the Awana Olympics in Muscatine one year. <laughs> just kind of say. <laughs> Not bragging, okay. <laughs> I helped, I, uh, after I aged out of Awana, I, I went to a youth group every single week without fail. I attended a private Christian school where we prayed every day. We had a class on the Bible. Every other class was intertwined with, with Christian themes. My favorite place to shop was at the mall in the Christian bookstore because it was there I could get my CDs. CDs were these round things, kids. Okay, they had music on them. Okay, I never thought I'd make that joke. but <laughs> Okay. Like that, those were the bands that I listened to, okay? Christian music was the only music I listened to. I only started to recognize some secular tunes, some of the classic rock, after my parents discovered that there was a parody band that changed the lyrics in order to make them reference the Bible, which made it really confusing when I'd actually hear the actual songs because I would start singing what I knew, and it was not the right way. Weirdo Christian kid. Every summer, I attended at least one, if not multiple, VBS programs, along with Christian camp when we could afford it. I participated in every Christmas and Easter play. I went on mission trips and service projects. I went to Acquire the Fire youth conferences, Promise Keepers gatherings. I even went to a Billy Graham crusade just because. I kissed dating goodbye. I wore a purity ring. I only watched movies that were approved by Focus on the Family. I wore WWJD bracelets. Christian t-shirts made up more than 80% of my wardrobe, and that's being generous. And more than once, people argued over who got to have me on their team when we did Bible trivia, or if it was fair to have me play. And by the age of 12, I had asked Jesus into my heart about eight times. Why? Like, wasn't, wasn't once enough? Like, it only needed once, right? You would think that, but apparently I didn't get it. Because in spite of everything I did to look like a good Christian kid, I didn't understand what it actually looked like to love Jesus. Every time the camp or conference speaker would invite kids forward to pray the prayer, I rushed forward and, and I would give my life to Jesus again, and it would scratch that itch, but that emotional high of the altar call would wear off after about a week, leaving me feel just as empty as before. And some of you in this room will be able to relate to that story, because it, in a visceral way, it reminds you of your own. And for those who don't get it, you just you need to understand that I lived and breathed basic Christian culture. There is, there's nothing 
about myself that was not influenced by American evangelicalism. I lived in a bubble, and I loved it. Like, this is who I was. And I'm not saying that there's anything bad necessarily about all those things, but I didn't get that there was something more. Do you understand what I'm saying? I loved the community of the church. I loved feeling like I was in a super special exclusive club. But because I didn't understand the gospel, I was really just in love with the idea of God. That's what I mean by that phrase that we keep coming back to. I was addicted to being part of this group, and I knew all the verses to say, and I knew the right phrases to say, but apparently there was a disconnect between my brain and my heart. As I grew up, I was forced to confront the fact that I'd been coasting through my faith journey, that I'd just been doing the easy stuff, which is not to say I wasn't busy, because obviously, through that list, I was busy, okay? But I was just coasting. I remember taking the Bible entrance exam during orientation weekend my freshman year at Bible college. Uh, The idea was to take a test at the very beginning, and then you would take another test at graduation, and it would just help you see what you learned. It wasn't a pass-fail thing. It was just, where are you at? I was probably the most arrogant person walking into that test. I'm like, oh, I got this. Pastor's kid. I figured I'd score at least 80%, maybe even 81%. I mean, obviously, there's going to be things that I could learn. It was, it was college. It was Bible college. And then I scored in the low to mid-30s. I called my dad just like, I don't know what happened. I thought I knew the Bible. It was a wake-up call. Thankfully, I've matured a lot since then. I've, I've understood that while there's nothing wrong with all those things that were important to me as a child, there needed to be something more. It has continued to frustrate me that the Christian culture I grew up with has continued to be so basic. As a pastor, that's just something I can't ignore. We constantly choose to hide behind our fluffy, feel-good bubble that's filled with catchy worship music and engaging conferences, simplistic movies, because it's safe and it's non-threatening. It doesn't make us actually put work to our faith. When we do find ourselves faced with tough issues, people who genuinely want answers— we give cliched responses that, that do nothing but shut down the conversation because it makes us uncomfortable and, and we're happy with where we're at. And I say this because that's m- most of my life. We then act surprised at the growing number of young people who are, are leaving churches in droves. They are deconstructing their faith on TikTok and proudly proclaiming that they are now ex evangelicals and as much as we wish that we could blame the rise of these ex-evangelicals on a specific trend or a church recording label or a celebrity pastor or a political ideology, the truth is that the blame rests squarely on us when we just love the basics. The basics that encourage Christ followers to remain in infancy, remain as babies, instead of challenging us to grow up and address tough stuff. So we're going to challenge ourselves today to buck that trend, learn from Scripture what it looks like to be spiritually mature. The early church, almost 2,000 years ago now, struggled with some of this very same immaturity that you and I struggle with. We're going to look at a few passages that talk about how their behavior was addressed. 
So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. Um, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, simply because I like how it phrases this, uh, but you can use whatever translation that you like. In this passage, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he is harsh, super, super harsh in his critique. It, this is not just like, oh, you should do better. But this, no, Paul brings it. Okay? He uses a, a very particular visual that should stand out to you. Let me read it again. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another, quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world when one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Aren't you acting just like people of the world? Verse 2 is just, it's a gut punch. It says, I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready. Before we dig into that, let's jump over to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, because this visual makes another appearance. Again, I'm using the, the NLT, but again, you can use ESV or whatever, you're, whatever you have available. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, says, there's much more I would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. This is going great. You have been believers so long that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And just how Paul was harsh with the Christians in, in Corinth, there are no pulled punches by the author of Hebrews. Verse 12 echoes verse 2 in the previous passage. You have been believers so long that you ought to be teaching others. He's like, what are you doing? You should be out there. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Here we have two separate passages of Scripture, most likely from two separate authors, who are both accusing Christians of having the spiritual maturity of babies. This isn't directed at non-believers. This is directed at those who have already embraced the gospel of Jesus, who know better, okay? The people who were like me could recite all the verses and all the, the big thoughts. It's directed at them, okay? So what's going on with the whole milk for solid food thing? Well, for one, if somebody calls you a baby, it's probably not a good thing, okay? I asked permission, but... Here's, here's an example from my daughter. She's five years old now. When she was a baby, she could only have milk. And she wasn't ready for anything else, and that was okay. She was a baby, okay? You don't give a newborn steak. It's just like, just gnaw on it for a day, okay? But that changed as she grew up. She began to get teeth, which was a painful process. And now that she has those teeth... She still enjoys milk with her cereal. It's not that milk has no place in her life, but the majority of what she eats now is solid food. 
Okay? If Stephanie and I had kept her only on milk for the past five years, she would not be receiving all the nutrients that she needs. She would be incredibly unhealthy or worse. So the writers here are telling their fellow Christians that they need to grow up spiritually. They need to stop sticking to the easy beginner stuff. It was fine at the beginning, but not any longer. You understand what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with the basics as long as you, own, you don't stay with the basics, okay? If you are mature in your faith, eat some solid food. Let's jump back to 1 Corinthians 3, because verses 3 and 4 demands more of our attention. 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and 4 says, You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of the world? The local church in Corinth was full of people who were apparently fighting over which of them were better Christians over or based solely on who had led them to Jesus, which is just dumb. Okay, and Paul points that out. These people, these Christians are saying, well, you know Paul? Yeah, the Paul, he led me to Jesus. And the others are are saying, well, Paul is just a long-winded traveling missionary. Apollos, the great preacher, he led me to Jesus. He actually cares about me and sticks around. So you have these people who are just arguing over just like dumb stuff, okay? And Paul's reaction is, in the Pastor Jared paraphrase version, y'all are being ridiculous. He is mad. He's like, what are you doing? And I feel for Paul and Apollos, like, I can easily easily imagine the pain of hearing that their fellow believers are using them as weapons to win an argument. It's like, that is not what I told you last time when I preached the word. What are you doing using me to have this argument? I can imagine the heartache of giving everything you've got to preach the gospel, to teach people what it means to follow Jesus, only to watch them fail so spectacularly. I wish that being a spiritual infant was something that just automatically stopped when we reached adulthood, but it's not. If it was, my early 20s would have been much easier. That's not how it works. Christian adults, we don't have it automatically all together. We don't have it automatically figured out, okay? I've seen that firsthand my entire life. Growing up as a pastor's kid, I've seen stuff, okay? I've listened to grown adults brag about how their particular church is better than the church down the road, and I've listened to them plan events on how they're going to attract people from the other church and get them to switch. I have, I've had to stay silent while this older church lady got in my face just a couple inches away, shaking her finger, yelling at me, saying that she was going to leave the church if my dad, her pastor, dared to switch out the 40-year-old broken-down pews for comfy chairs. As a child, I'm like, I'm not the pastor. Why are you talking to me? But that's what I've seen from adults who I thought, you're a Christian, right? You have it all together. I've had to smile on the outside while dying a little bit on the inside. As adult brothers and sisters in the faith have gossiped and leveled mean-spirited critiques at myself and other pastors that I know based on nothing more than 
their personal preference for what they think an ideal pastor should look like or sound like. And it's just like Paul saying, what are you doing? Why are you so focused on this? Friends, that type of behavior is not reflective of a life that has been changed by the good news of Jesus. I get it, being mature in our faith, allowing Christ to truly change us from the inside out, change everything we do and say, is hard. It is so much easier to just stick with the milk instead of the solid food. Okay, it is undeniably easier to just be like, nah, I got my milk. Okay? But easier doesn't mean better. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading now from the ESV. We're, we're going to see what else Paul had to say about truly behaving like a believer, as opposed to someone who just acts like it on the outside, someone who walks the walk and doesn't just talk the talk. Philippians 2, 1 through 12. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those first 11 verses back up all that we've been talking about with this God's Heart for the World series. It states clearly that our actions should show that we love others because God loved us first. Jesus, who is God, chose to set aside his glory for a time and be born in our likeness. He loved us so much that he died for our sins on the cross, providing a way for us to be made right with God and live forever with him in heaven. If that means anything to you, Paul argues, then let it change your behavior. If it means anything, show it. You can't just claim the hope of Jesus and continue to act like those who haven't understood Jesus loves them. There has to be a difference between you and them. And then we get to verse 12. It's under a different heading, but it's referring back to what we just read. The hint is that it says, therefore, meaning that since all of what was just said is true, this next part must also be true. Okay, let's read verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here in Philippians 2.12, Paul is telling the Christians what they already knew. That being a follower of Christ is hard. It requires a response. He knew firsthand that it is rarely easy to reflect Jesus to this broken world. He's not saying, that, like, change. It's so easy. He's like, no, it's hard, but do it anyway. 
Instead of giving them an easy way out, he urges them to continue in the struggle. The New Living Translation puts it this way, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Little side note, this was written around 62 AD, give or take. In 64 AD, there was a fire in Rome, and Nero began persecuting the Christians, putting them in coliseums, letting people watch them die for sport, using them as lanterns to light his feasts. The people who originally got this message knew what was happening in Rome two years later. This was fresh in their minds when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And they're like, but Paul, have you seen everything that's going on? Maybe, maybe it doesn't count anymore. But no, clearly it still counts because we still have this message 2,000 years later. The phrase fear and trembling describes what it looks like to, to respond to Jesus' offer of salvation. It describes our daily struggle to follow the Messiah in this broken world. It's that argument we have with ourselves internally when we check the news and we, we see that something awful has happened again and we don't know what to do. I mean, we're, I'm born again. What, what, what do I do? I can only speak for myself, but I know that anytime there's a big headline, my internal dialogue just goes into overdrive. It, it's something like this. I want to be like Jesus, and right now there's something in my world that is tugging at my soul what am I supposed to do? What would Jesus do? Am I allowed to chime in? To, to what extent should I chime in? What, to what extent should I speak my mind? Am I supposed to get involved, or, or do I stay out of it? If I speak up, I risk offending my brothers and sisters in the faith who might disagree, but the alternative goes against my moral compass. Maybe I can just say something vague online. That would ease my conscience. Or maybe I should just say silent not rock the boat. But wait, as a believer in Jesus Christ who has been given the job of showing his love to the world, do I even have that option? That is fear and trembling. It is agonizing over how to let our faith permeate every facet of our lives, every conversation, every status update, every snap and story, every gut reaction. It's hard. And it is much a struggle for me as it is for you, living out our life as Christians is difficult. These passages that we've read this morning, they connect in a because this, that sort of way. I believe that our apprehension, our, our, our pushback against fear and trembling is why we so often stick to spiritual milk instead of solid food. We know what it will take. We know how hard it will be. So we're like, mm-mm-mm, I'm going to stick with easy stuff. Okay? We Christians, we know what will happen if we dig deep into what it means to follow Jesus. To, to borrow a visual from last time I was up here, this resistance to the hard stuff is why, is why we, we try to put God in, in a little box. Okay? We, we try to keep our Christianity, our faith, in this tiny, small, contained area of life, instead of facing issues that surround us every single day with an attitude of, what would Jesus do? Not an attitude of, well, I know what to do, but in a, what would Jesus do? As a callback to my church kid days, I would not be against the comeback of the WWJD bracelets if it meant 
that our decision-making was actually affected by them. If it wasn't just a Christian, but it actually was a reminder of, what would Jesus do? What do I do? Huh. Those elements of church culture, like I said, they're not bad. I learned so much from Awana and youth group and church and all those things. I learned so much, and it has shaped me to be who I am today. It's when we stick with the simple stuff and we refuse to get into the weeds that we have problems. Christians, we, we got to really struggle with our faith and understand what it means for our lives. So what are we going to do about it? What do we do knowing that we have to choose daily whether or not to remain as spiritual infants or to embrace a habit of working out our salvation with fear and trembling? We can't stick with the basics of our faith. We've got to grow up even though it is scary. How? We need to begin and end with looking to Scripture and relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us forward as we embrace fear and trembling, as we embrace the hardship of wrestling with what it means to show our salvation in the midst of tough stuff. There is so much tough stuff in this world that surrounds us, okay? Racism, Christian nationalism, homelessness, teen pregnancy, substance abuse, mental health, sexuality, social justice, the list goes on and on. And we just, we hear those words and we're like, no. Because we don't want to hear about it. We're just like, oh, he can't say that. But these are the things that are in our world that if we are Christians, what do we do? Okay? We don't get the luxury of stiffening up our backs and ignoring stuff that we deem too divisive to talk about because Scripture says we got to address the world and we got to share the love of Jesus. Instead of trying to shut down conversations that we find difficult by defaulting to emotional straw man arguments, which is what everyone else is doing, be different. We got to take a breath pray, maybe grab a friend, sit down with God's word, and wrestle with how to respond in light of the salvation that we claim to have received. And then make ourselves ready to communicate our Jesus-centered convictions. Whatever those convictions may be, I'm not telling you what your convictions should be. I'm saying whatever those convictions may be, as long as they are Christ-centered, that you communicate them in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. Does that make sense? This means yes, this means no. Just let me know, okay? You and I as Christians have the privilege of being light amongst all the brokenness of this world. What an amazing gift it is to be able to share the hope of Jesus with this world. We can't afford to stay silent because it's difficult to wrestle with current events. Why would we let a temporary thing block us from eternal salvation? from sharing that eternal salvation with others. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Our creator has a heart for everyone, even those we disagree with, even those who are in active rebellion against him. We've seen examples of this in in Scripture from Jonah and Rahab, Ruth, and Jael. Jesus directed his followers to go out and make disciples— it is impossible for us to fulfill the task that we have been given unless we're willing to get outside of our basic 
Christian culture bubble and show those who are hurting and craving answers that Jesus is greater than anything the world can offer. Amen? If this challenge makes you bitter, if you're just like, "Mm, don't like that, if it makes you bitter, my advice, work on switching up those letters and get better instead. Get better at putting down the milk, grabbing a plate of solid food, and daily working out your salvation with fear and trembling. I get that it's hard. I get that I'm working with it every single day alongside you, okay? It's difficult to understand, like, what do I do? All I know is that we have Jesus, and we should share him with the world because God loves the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we get to partner with you in your kingdom work, that we get to have a chance to share hope with the world. God, give us courage to wrestle with our faith, to, in the fear and trembling, figure out what it looks like to actually put action to our faith. Father, help us to not just stick with the milk of the spiritual life, but to dig into the solid food, the hard stuff, the the stuff that requires some work to digest. We thank you for this body, for these believers who desire you above all else. In your holy name I pray, amen.